and welcome back to the Presto Music Podcast. I'm David, and keen-eared listeners with good memories might remember that a little while ago, I was Paul's guest to talk about English church music. This time round, I'm the one in the host's chair, and with me is probably the best-known living horn player, Sarah Willis. Sarah has been at the Berlin Phil since 2001, has her own TV programme on Germany's Deutsche Welle, and of course is the host of the very, very popular YouTube series, Sarah's Horn Hangouts. Hello, Sarah. Hello, lovely to be here. And there's no better way to introduce a horn player than with a movement from a Mozart horn concerto. Mozart, of course, we all know and love. Horn players, perhaps, especially so, given those four just glorious, glorious concertos that he wrote for us. But in terms of what you've been up to recently, Sarah, there's Mozart as one side of the coin, and there's another rather different side, the Latin American dance known as the Mambo, which you've been combining with Mozart on two recent albums, Mozart y Mambo and Cuban Dances. These are not the most obviously related things, I think it's fair to say, or at least they don't seem so. So what's the link between these two things? Well, firstly, it's every horn player's dream to record the Mozart horn concertos, at least it was mine. And uh, I decided to do it a bit differently than everyone else and not put them all onto one album, but to to combine them in this crazy fashion, like you just said, with some mambo. But with this second album, Cuban Dances, we've gone a bit further and we, it, it, there's not only mambo on this one. We ha- we are exploring all sorts of different, different Cuban rhythms. And on the first album, we we mixed a little bit. We we put some. We we did pure Mozart and pure Mambo, and then we we mixed them. And uh, people had a lot of a lot of fun listening to it. There are of course some purists out there that think it's it's a terrible thing. You must never mix Mozart's music with anything. But we think Mozart would have liked it. He would have been a good Cuban. At least that's what we think. On this second album, Cuban Dances, we have decided to go a bit more in the classical way, not only classical music by Mozart's standards, but also classical Cuban. And classical Cuban are all the dances, these all these traditional dances like cha-cha-cha, um, mambo, bolero, son, danson, all these dances that actually are getting quite lost in the popular days, salsa and reggaeton. And we aren't mixing those with Mozart this time. We're keeping them very pure, and it was then a big it was then a big responsibility for me because I had to learn these dances, not only how to dance them, but how to play them. So we've we've got a yeah we've got a we've got a bit further down the road than just mambo, but uh, yeah, it will always be my first passion in the Cuban music. So as a little taster of that first approach, the mixing approach is the uh, serenade mambo, and I'm sorry, yes, there are going to be a couple of other Sarah-related puns, um, by Ernesto Olivero, I think I've pronounced that correctly, from the first Mozart Mambo album. <laughs> 
like that one. I imagine that's one of the ones that people got a bit hot under the collar about the mix. Yeah. No, no, it was funny. And it was only, I mean, it wasn't many, but of course, some people, but you've heard this Eine Kleine Nacht music in every combination mm. there has ever been. And in every elevator in the world, you can hear Eine Kleine Nacht music. So people, I don't know if they got hot under the color, but of course, there's always some people think it's terrible that music should be just purely as it was composed. But uh, Mozart was an improviser. So Mozart, uh, you know, went, loved his dance rhythms. He loved going off into different keys and all sorts. Mm. And for his music, he surprised us uh, quite often. And and I think this, this coming out as a mambo, it was very important to me not to do it cheesily and have it done very, very well. And Edgar Olivero is a Cuban who's now living in Spain and he's just a genius. He's just, it's really genius what he does. And it was very important to me that when we played the pieces which he has arranged, that the Cubans didn't groan and say, oh, you know, mm. they, 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 one of those foreign mixes again. But the mm. Cubans actually were the ones that sat and said, oh, that's really, really good. And then I knew we were onto a good thing. So it doesn't always land these kind of mixing things, but they're always fascinating. And so here we've got, you know, 18th century Austria and contemporary or contemporary-ish Cuba. Have there been any other examples of that kind of meeting of cultures that you've run across over the years that have sort of whetted your appetite for it? Well, there's been a lot of, of like, you remember the hooked on classic days of years and years and years ago when, um, I think it was the RPO just put a beat under, un, under all the best classics you've ever heard and, and, and mixed them all up. And, and that was, that was the first experience I'd had of, of hearing, um, classical music with a beat. And it's just been, everyone has experimented with that. You know, you listen, even house music and in the clubs. And I, I have a friend that mixes for, for very, some very, very big clubs and when he, he whips up the audience into a frenzy with his music and then he calms them down by putting on some Bach um, with a beat. It, it's it's fascinating how a bit of classical music can have that sort of yeah effect on audiences. And whether you like it or not, I think it's a good thing to experiment. And I think some, some of it is very good and some of it is not so good, but it's always a good thing to experiment. And with Latin music, there have been, um, well, you remember Roll Over Beethoven, da 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 there was all sorts of things going on already. So what I'm doing is nothing new. But what I'm doing, I hope, is of a high quality. It's very important to me to keep it all in a very high quality, that to not have a lot of cheese in there, to, to make sure it's played well and in tune and with, with good, really good instrumentalists. And I found them in Cuba and these arrangements are absolutely genius. I mean, I suppose there's a world of difference between that and just like sampling a recording of the first two bars of Beethoven's fifth. Totally. There's a lot of thought went into it. And uh, yeah, yeah. and on the second album, there's a little nod to Mozart from Edgar Olivero again, um, which we call the Pa-Pa-Pa, which is the famous duet between Papageno and Papagena, talking about the future, their future together. And everybody knows this aria, but they've never heard it in this version where a horn and a baritone saxophone have the same conversation. And it's to make people smile, you know, it's, it's not... It, it doesn't have to be analyzed and put up on the shelf with all Mozart's recordings. It's to make people smile and and just just have something different. And I think 
we humans, we like what we know. And it's the same in music, you know, we, we like what we know. And if we hear it done in a charming fashion, which I've really tried to do with our arrangements, I mean, I have wonderful people that do them. But of course, I, I get a say in, in what I like and what I don't like and, and what's too cheesy and what's too difficult, because we have had some arrangements that have been too difficult for my ear to understand. The Cubans thought they were great. But then for me, an Afro-Cuban rhythm can get quite, quite tiring after a while. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's been a real adventure. And, uh, and the big secret is, which, of course, you're not going to tell anyone, are you? Um, is that there's a third album, <laughs> which has already been recorded and will be, be, will be released, I think, sometime next year. And on that album, we go back to the mixing of Mozart and uh, a very, very, very exciting way. And here is then a little bit of Edgar Oliveira's nod to Mozart's magic flute with Pa Pa Pa. There's obviously a lot more to this than just that exciting melting pot, melting pot of musical styles, though. And there's really quite a serious motivation at its heart. When we spoke a few years ago about the first volume of this, I remember you telling me these unbelievable stories about the just appalling state of the instruments that these musicians have to work with. There was some young lady, I think you were giving a masterclass or something, and you picked up her instrument to demonstrate something. And it fell apart. And you, uh, I remember you saying you were just mortified. She said, oh, no, it does that all the time. Like, put it back together again with the scrunching. I remember that very well. That moment. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got the instrument fund that you set up to try and get these players the instruments they deserve. How has that been playing out? And where's it sort of gone and where's it going? Well, it's been amazing because when the album, the first album of Mozart Mambo came out, um, we had a, a one euro donation for every album sold. And this album went crazy. It went, it went viral. It was absolutely wonderful. I mean, in our humble classical musical uh, music world, that's of course not Jennifer Lopez viral, but you know, we did the best we could. But when you think that Rondo Alamambo, which was the main video from Mozart Mambo, it was viewed I think eight and a half million times on Facebook alone that it, it did really well. I mean, people saw that that have nothing to do with classical music and, and, and that's great. And the instrument fund then made good money from the sales of the album, which we're very grateful. But we also had some wonderful donations and we also had people donating instruments. I was started getting calls from people all around the world saying, hey, I've got a flute or I've got a violin. And to be honest, it's been it's been actually a lot of work, much more work than I imagined, trying to coordinate all these instruments. Not only that, but making sure once we got them over to, to Havana to make sure everyone got their picture of their right instrument with the right person it went to. Um, a flute, a retired flute player in in um, in Holland sent his flute over to us, a, a retired couple who had been in a professional symphony orchestra here in Germany, a violin and a viola, very good quality. And um, we've done really, really well. We even managed to 
send back two double bases, <laughs> new double bases that we'd picked out. And it's made the world of difference to the orchestra. And when we went to record the second album in Havana in January and then finished it off in April, our recording engineer, Christoph Franke, who is um, one of the heads of the, our digital concert hall in Berlin, in the Berlin Philharmonic, he said, this orchestra is incredible. He said, as a recording engineer, he could hear the difference in the quality, not only in the playing, because they've worked very hard over the past couple of years, but the instruments have made such a difference. We had violinists playing with viola bows, which I had no idea that was a bad thing, but apparently it's a very bad thing, um, because they didn't have any other bows. But now each one of them, thanks to these generous people, and not only that, we've had, um, when we were here on tour last summer, we had a Mozart Mambo tour through Germany, we had all different instrument makers and, and, and re repairers and luthiers come to help us out and fix the instruments and make them better. And people have just been so incredibly generous. I'm very grateful. But I must say, because I'm allowed to, it's, I'm on the podcast, so I'm allowed to, the fund is going on. <laughs> it's not finished. It's an ongoing thing. The more the merrier. We are so grateful to everything that's been contributed. And we have what's happened since the Mozart Mambo project. We've managed to get quite a few of the musicians studying now in Europe and America. So they've had a chance to, to leave the country and to, to, to study properly. And so what we're doing in Havana right now is we've got an education project, which is training younger musicians to then be in the Havana Lyceum Orchestra. Because the wonderful thing about Mozart Mambo is that now the young Young musicians in Cuba, that's their goal, to play in the Havana Lyceum Orchestra. So it's, it's all carrying on. And, uh, and if anyone's interested in supporting it, I would love to hear from them. One of the particularly exciting things about the second volume, The Cuban Dances, is that you've commissioned some new pieces for it. Let's just have a bit of one of those first to give people a feel for it. This is the second of the Serapans. Seracha, I think? Seracha. <laughs> Seracha by Unilet Lombida and Ernesto Oliva. We were worried about people not pronounce because it didn't have an H in it. Because in, in in Latin America, Sarah doesn't have an H, so it was it was it was sriracha. That's what it looked like. So we thought we better put the H in to make it clear it was another pun because it's a cha for Sarah, and it's great. It's so great. So this is the fifth movement from the Cuban dancers that give the album its name, which is a set of six dance-based compositions that you've commissioned from Cuban composers, and they sort of come together in a kind of collaborative concerto, I guess. How much was there shuttling back and forth about this? Because presumably you had to do a lot of the composing and the commissioning over Zoom and, and through lockdown. Oh my goodness, shuttling backwards and forth doesn't even start to describe it. I actually wanted one peaceful horn concerto written by one Cuban composer, and that's what I was going to do. The problem was I decided to do it 
of course, in a different fashion. I don't know why I keep doing these things. Um, and I had a co competition and I asked young Cuban composers to uh, submit a minute or so of, of, of a work, an original work. I wanted a dance for, for horn, strings and Cuban percussion. We had... I think, I don't know how many entries we had, but there were so many good ones that I now have six movements by six composers and we made a concerto out of that. So each dance is completely unique, but they are traditional rhythms. So it's new music. It's not just an arrangement of, of, a, of a song that we all know. They're original pieces, original melodies, but with original Cuban, Cuban rhythms. So is this doing the same sort of thing as Piazzolla and his sort of new tangos? A very similar thing. Not, not only is it the first time that this has been, any of this has been composed for a French horn. No one's, I mean, French horn is not your normal day-to-day -day salsa instrument. There are French horn players in Cuba, but that's not an instrument that's been promoted a lot. But this is the first time we've had a Cuban horn concerto, but also that these rhythms have to be played on a French horn. But it's also, if you turn it around, it's also been an education project because we are using rhythms that haven't been written down properly before, at least not for such classical players. So I remember Pepe Mendes, our conductor, saying, saying to the composers, you better write what she sees she plays. If I see a dot dash or, a, or a, an accent with a slur, I will do that. That's just how I've been trained. And if they don't know exactly how to write it, it will just sound wrong. I'll get it because I spent a lot of time in Cuba. But once we publish a music, and I'm hoping this will be a piece for future generations of horn players, they will, you know, they'll have a, a recording for, uh, you know, to know how, how, how to play it. But you still have to write it down in a way, not only for the horn players, but for the percussion. For Cuban percussionists, all you have to do is write mambo, and they know exactly what to do. You don't even have to write the instruments or write bolero or danzón. But now each composer has had to really sit down and think, how do I write this? So it's been a huge process and also lots of backwards and forwards to answer your question. I was, I was in Cuba during the lockdown, I think four, four times. We had a lot of, you can't just zoom in with someone there. There's not enough bandwidth for it. We had a lot of WhatsApp uh, messages backwards and forwards. I would play something. I would say, no, no, no. They've all actually said I should get co-composers credits because I, I took a lot of it apart but they they brought the the tunes they brought the rhythms they brought this this genius and I just had to turn it into something I could play <laughs> it was sometimes a little ambitious presumably you have this problem where you will be saying can't you just write it down and they'll be saying can't you just feel it exactly that's exactly the point. And with these dances, they are such such a basic part of Cuban, Cuban life. And to be able to play them, I had to learn how to dance them. There was no way around it. So I had the Guaguanco, for example, is an Afro-Cuban Afro rhythm that was danced by the slaves who had come in over from Africa and, and mixed their, their mu music with Cuban music. And they, they developed this dance. It's quite a, uh, you know, quite an erotic dance, quite a sort of boy gets girl dance. 
um, but it's so earthy and so like in your knees and, and down to down to earth. It's nothing like a mambo or nothing like a bolero. And the only way I could really feel these rhythms was to dance them. So I had a, um, a lot of help along the way. And there's actually a, a film coming out soon uh, in the autumn um, about how we how we did all that. And in the end, we performed each dance in the area in Cuba it came from with dancers from that area. So that was a really fascinating project. So having got into that dancing mindset, not just a mindset, but it sounds a bit of a body set, if that's a thing. Are you kidding me? Dancing mindset. I was 100% in there with every bit of my body. I tell you, you had to, you had to feel those rhythms before they, I could actually transform them into something on the horn. So does that now come a bit back the other direction? Is it informing how you think about the Mozart and, and the other kind of quote unquote core classical repertoire? Absolutely. They've improved my rhythm incredibly. So, and I've really noticed that in, in the orchestra, um, in Mozart. I just have a much more dance-like feeling to my playing. At least I try. <laughs> um, of course, you don't really want dance-like rhythm uh, feeling in your playing when you're playing, you know, a slow movement of Mahler or something. But uh, my job in the orchestra is a completely different one. You have to play how the music fits. But it, when I'm playing solo repertoire, it really has lightened up everything. And, uh, and, and it really helped me with Mozart. So these are, coming back to the concertos now, they are obviously such beloved favourites of the repertoire um, to the extent of you know, people parody them, that Flanders and Swan. You've recorded three of them, and I'm sure you've performed all four zillions of times. Do you have a favourite, or is that like asking somebody to pick their favourite child? Now that's really cruel because how can you have a favorite? You can't have a favorite child or favorite colors are hard to, and a favorite Mozart horn concerto, each one, and now they've all been recorded, but that's a secret I'm not allowed to say. Uh, <laughs> I see that was what was on the third volume. Of course, you will get them all. You will get them all. So on the first album, we have Mozart three and the Mozart Rondo, and also a movement, a concert movement. That was wonderful to, to discover. Mozart three for me um, was always my favorite because it's considered the one for the low horns. I'm a low horn player in the Berlin Philharmonic. I play second. It's the one without any top B flats in it. Exactly. But we do put top B flats into the cadenzas because then we have to just prove we can do them. Mozart two has ended up, I think, by being my favorite. Mozart one is in D major and it's rather fiddly. And yeah. you use your third finger a lot. And our third fingers are not very, very fast. So I found Mozart one lovely, but fiddly. Yes. And Mozart four is the audition piece. So I, I love it with a passion, but I, it's been played a lot. And I played that one many, and I teach it. Everybody who comes for a lesson plays me Mozart four. So I think I would have to say uh, of all of them, I've enjoyed Mozart two the most, but Mozart three will always stay close to my heart because one, it doesn't have so many high notes. <laughs> and it is, it's the first one that I actually dared to record because it's a big deal. If you've been playing as a tutti member of a horn section for as long as I have, to then come and stand in the front of the orchestra and record a solo album, it wasn't my intention at all. I just knew that I had to do something as a soloist to make the name for this album, because otherwise people weren't really going to be in a, interested in a classical orchestra in Cuba playing some sort of Mozart. No, they needed a name that they recognized. Oh, that's see, Oh, she's daring to play the Mozart horn concertos. <laughs> so Mozart three will be, will always be beloved, but I must say, I really enjoyed recording Mozart two. It's very Cuban. It's really dance-like. 
Just before we let you go, Sarah, can you tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment? Well, we're working on the promotion for the Cuban dances, and there's a lot of publicity around that, which is is lovely, but it's it's a lot of work. We have a little tour with the Havana Lyceum Orchestra. We're playing at the Mozarteum in Salzburg to celebrate 100 years of something, actually. I better look up and see what that is. <laughs> and, um, and then we're going on a little German tour and ending up at the Berlin Philharmonie, which is very exciting. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's busy. Biz- Business as usual back at the at the Berlin Phil and uh, yeah a lot of a lot of talk about Cuba but I love these musicians and the, and the music was such a passion it's always a pleasure to talk about them life has been very hard in Cuba recently and during the lockdown and the embargo is still there and there isn't enough to eat and everything's too expensive and and to see the the passion with which my my musicians there have 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 really gone into this second part of the project and also the third part of the project because you know, as I said, a uh, big secret. Um, <laughs> there is a part three coming out later, but it has given us all hope during these difficult times. And it's been very touching to, to, to go through this with them. So I'm so grateful to them. And people say, oh, isn't it great what Sarah's doing for these Cuban musicians? But to be honest, it's amazing what they're doing for me, because when I play with them, I remember why I'm a musician, because they love it with all their heart. And, and, and there I can just be completely uninhibited and just play as well as I can and not have to worry about anything. And 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 it's really so fantastic making music with them. I, I hope that comes out in the album. So thank you for having me. No, thank you. Thank you very much. They're just two albums full of joy, aren't they? And like you say, that's kind of what we all need a bit at the moment. Cuban Dances is out on September the 2nd. And to play us out, here's the third movement of Mozart's second horn concerto with Sarah Willis, of course, and the Havana Lyceum Orchestra under Jose Antonio Mendez Padron. Thank you. 